Country Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, November 2nd. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On this week's financial show, we've got a couple of big earnings reports to dive into. We're going to talk a little bit more about some headwinds, maybe, that that are uh, forming in in the REIT space. Uh, It looks like Square may be making another acquisition here soon. We'll talk a little bit about that. Of course, we'll have one to watch for you uh, for the coming week. A couple of stock ideas uh, from me and and Matt. And, And speaking of Matt, Matt Frankel, I've got you back in the house here. Took a week off last week, a much-deserved break, but certified financial planner. Matt Frankel, thanks for being here. Hey, it's good to be back. It's always good to take a little break and, you know, stretch the legs and stuff. I went up to the mountains <laughs> with the family. Um, had, had a, we, I took my two- and four-year-old on a big hike up a mountain, which was really interesting. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, but we had we had fun. It was the, the highest point in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, you can only drive up so far, and then there's like another three, four hundred feet you can can hike vertically almost. Oh man! Um, and my two-year-old's a climber, so he did great. Oh, that's terrific. <laughs> that's yeah. At that age, you never know. They just they get tired so quickly. It's just it's always a bit of a gamble. <laughs> yeah, I only have to carry him a little bit. Well, you know, hey, that's they get heavy after <laughs> after a while, even at two years old. Well, I'm glad you had a good time, and I'm glad we've got you back in the saddle here. Um, let's go ahead and jump right in and let's talk a little bit about some of these earnings reports that came out last week. We have the two big payments, uh, providers there in Visa and MasterCard reported, uh, middle of last week and very similar reports, Matt, the, the market seemed to receive them kind of the same way as well. I mean, it wasn't a great week for either stock and yeah, they've, they've done a good job treading water here this year, uh, given everything that's been going on. But, you know, I, I think in, in, in at least my perspective and looking through these reports and going through the calls, it seemed like there was plenty of, of optimism in there. And so let's go ahead and start with Visa at least and talk about how they're viewing things here. You know, what I mean, the, the quarter itself, I mean, you know, top line revenue was down. Um, it looked like about 17%, so a little bit more the, than $5.1 billion in net revenue there, down a little bit for, for some obvious reasons. But it was interesting to me the language they've, they've used in the call when they talk about, you know, this U shape versus V shape recovery and whatnot. And they're seeing this playing out a little bit differently. Uh, whether it's domestic or whether it's cross-border, right? They, they've talked about seeing more of a V-shaped recovery for domestic payment volumes. But when we get into the cross-border market, where these companies are making lots of investments, they're still really witnessing more of an L-shaped recovery. And that, that has to do for, uh, you know, obviously, borders that are, that are being uh, locked down now, and, and there's just less travel going on. But what stood out to you in the, in the quarter for Visa? Well, you actually just hinted at one of the big things that stood out um, is cross-border payments. Uh, you mentioned revenues down. Revenue fell 17% year over year. But interestingly enough, total payment volume for the quarter rose by 4% in, in Visa's network. So it may sound kind of weird, like don't they make their you know percentage of transactions and that's where they get their money, which yes, that's the case. But the biggest fees come from cross-border transfers. Um, you know, if you've ever, if you have a credit card, it might, it probably charges a foreign transaction fee, for example. Um, so this is one way that they, they make their money. And those in Visa's case, excluding money transfers that just happen within European countries, excluding that cross-border transfers were down 41% year over year. 
not surprising because you, there's no cross-border movement going on. I mean, no, no one's crossing borders. So it, there, there are fewer reasons to send money across borders. Um, but So that's one the big trend that really stood out to me. That's why revenue was down. Um, interesting, worth pointing out, Visa is still very profitable. Earnings were down 23%, but that... Another way to say that is they're still making more than three quarters of their previous profit. So take it with a big grain of salt. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Um, I think so. The other big thing that stood out is the mix of payment volume. I mentioned uh, Visa's payment volume was up 4% year over year. Debit card payment volumes were up 20% year over year. Credit card payment volumes were down 10% year over year. So people are more hesitant to put money on their credit cards, it seems, as opposed to debit cards, the debit cards have much lower interchange fees. It's worth pointing out. Yeah, and I mean that you know that that debit versus credit. I mean, obviously, that's a function of, of one essentially being pulled directly out of an account versus another, where you're you're not necessarily paying for it all at once. Um, yeah, let's let's talk for a minute about Visa's acquisition strategy because there are a couple of things that stood out here to me, and and I wanted to get your take on both of them here. One, we're seeing that Visa is acquiring this company called Yellow Pepper, and it's a company that, that they've partnered with for a while now. So the, you know, the, the acquisition, I mean, you, you typically don't get lots, uh, lots of information regarding the terms of the deal and whatnot. So this could be just another little sort of bolt-on acquisition, perhaps. But I think the bigger one really is the status of the Plaid deal. We've talked a little bit about this Plaid acquisition. It seems like at least that the, the DOJ is, is giving it a, uh, a closer look. Yeah, and I mean, and this is to be expected. Right now, um, we're seeing M and A activity heat up all over the financial services space. We've talked about this. It's a big. It's a, a lot of it's the function of consumers want lower fees. The big gradual trend is towards zero fees, and that's one big reason you're seeing so much consolidation. We've talked about this in the context of the brokerage business, um, where you know commissions have gone away. The way you make your money is to be more the more efficient than the other guy, and the way you get more efficient is to acquire things. Um, in the credit card space with Visa, you're seeing a lot of acquisitions intended to prevent them from being disrupted, I guess you'd say, which is, I think, where the plaid thing comes in, and especially the yellow pepper, which we'll talk about in just a second. But in terms of the plaid acquisition, it's when, when you have something like this, it's you're always going to see the, the DOJ investigate when you have a deal of this size that could, could potentially be a needle mover. I mean, the, the fact that they're investigating it really kind of shows you the value that this could add to Visa's business, in my opinion. Yeah, and it strikes me too that this, at least the the Platt acquisition, doesn't seem like an acquisition that is based on eliminating a potential competitor, right? I think we, in looking back at, at Facebook and Instagram, it's become clear based essentially on language that was used at the time when the deal was presented, that Facebook was looking at that acquisition as really kind of eliminating a potential competitor. It, it was partly about making Facebook a stronger business, but it was also very much in part eliminating a, a potential uh, competitor there. And, and so in hindsight, they probably should have kept that under the microscope more. I don't think that's really what's going on with the Plaid deal, but it is, it is, it has the potential to certainly make it a much stronger business. And I don't know, what were your thoughts on the Yellow Pepper acquisition? That, that's a big presence in Latin America, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, that's an, an obvious move to kind of increase the international presence. The big growth potential with for both Visa and MasterCard is internationally. Um, we're used to both of them being almost universally accepted in the U.S., especially in the past few years. Ever since companies like Square and PayPal made credit card acceptance so easily easy, 
it's it's pretty much universal here. That's not the case in a lot of markets, especially Latin America. Um, so it's not surprising to see Visa kind of invest a lot of money to get in, you know, to more of the inner workings of the fintech markets in Latin America. Um, I like the deal. I want to see the price. I'm pretty sure that one was an undisclosed price, or at least I couldn't find one. Um, so I'd like to... Th- <laughs> these acquisitions are going for a lot more money than I would have thought. Like I would never have thought PayPal was going to pay, you know, almost $4 billion for honey or whatever it was, or that visa was going to pay $5.3 billion for plaid. Um, so I want to see what the deal is, what the price of the deal is before I, you know, say whether it's a good move or not. <laughs> Sign um, off on because, it. <laughs> because sometimes in this market, I feel like I'm the only person in the world who still thinks that price matters. Well, you're not the only person that feels that way. I definitely feel that way. I, I to me, listen, price always matters. And, and that's one of, that's one of my, uh, I, I don't think I'll ever get past that now. I mean, there are different ways to view that and, and certainly valuation it is something that you want to look at in in relation to the company's growth prospects, but I absolutely do believe that price matters, and it does feel like right now nobody out there really cares about it. <laughs> and here's like here's the the million dollar question: like, is Plaid worth five point three billion dollars as a standalone business? Absolutely not. The question is, will it add that much value or more to Visa's business? Yeah, well, and that's it. I mean, Visa's got something like uh, I don't know what. F- Four billion cards out there now, or something. So I mean, you're you're plugging it into obviously the biggest payments network, and, and that that is is something that they can factor in. You know, it, it, that price becomes a little bit more justifiable, I think, to them at least, because they're viewing it from the size of the network. But but regardless, it is it is a matter of you still got to do something with it. And if you remember when when the plaid deal was announced, Visa's stock went down. Yeah, um, yeah and and. That. And my my big theory on why is because of the price of the deal, not necessarily because of the deal itself. It's because they're spending, you know, f- over five billion dollars of their capital, and in, in as opposed to putting it to use with you know buybacks or dividends or something like that. So that, that's a, that's a big chunk of change for a, a, and it's really unclear what Visa is going to do with Plaid. Yeah, yeah, it is unclear. <laughs> it, 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 the payment payment space is a very tricky one to fully uh, connect all the dots. Um, well, let's let's move over to Mastercard here because that was a that was a similar looking report and a similar, I think, um, sound on the call where where the optimism was was obviously still there, even though the numbers are challenged in some areas. But I mean, Mastercard the numbers uh, net revenue down fourteen percent for the quarter. I, you know, dealing with a lot of the same challenges that Visa is dealing with in regard to cross-border and, and global. Um, but what stood out to you in regard to Mastercard's core? Well, first of all, these earnings calls like we we could we could just play the Visa numbers again. They're, these businesses are that similar. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Mastercard, you know, slightly better in terms of revenue. Revenue was down fourteen percent. Um, my theory is that's just because Visa is more the debit card king in the in the United States, and debit cards have you know lower interchange fees, and they're seeing more debit card activity. Um, cross-border volume was down even worse than Visa's, down 48% year-over-year. Um, their earnings suffered as a result, down 26%. Um, and both Visa and MasterCard released the consumer spending trends into October by by week by week. Um, and we're seeing through October, everything's staying pretty steady. Cross, cross-border is inching up. Um, overall payment volume is inching up. But we're not seeing the a giant recovery heading into the holiday season, if that's what people were looking for at this point. It'll be interesting. The fourth quarter is going to be be key because, you know, on one hand, the, the virus cases are spiking and 
People are worried that there are going to be lockdowns and stuff like that. On the other hand, it's holiday shopping season. And there's a lot of pent-up consumer demand. A lot of people have been saving money all year. So it'll be really interesting to see how that how the, the next quarter plays out for both of these. But as far as the numbers, it wasn't too surprising. I mean, I expected cross-border to be – I actually thought cross-border would be down a lot more than 48% just based on how locked down everybody's borders are these days. Um, so – but and you know, Mastercard four percent overall volume growth was exactly in the U.S. was exactly the same as Visa's. Um, so you know, it, like it's, these numbers just show just what similar businesses these two are. Yeah, and I, and I think to your point there about feeling like maybe the numbers could have been worse given the state of things. I mean, I think part of that is due to the you know the cons- the way the consumer actually feels about this right now i mean i noticed in mastercard's call they pointed out some of their some of their own internal research um you know talking about the shift toward electronic payments and they they noted in the call that that essentially 7 in 10 people globally say that this shift toward electronic payments and in you know more e-commerce like business being done will likely be permanent um and and then also that their research showed that about 60% of consumers plan to use less cash even after the the pandemics besides i mean on the one hand i mean i i kind of feel like yeah that makes perfect sense and on the other hand i, I kind of thought man you know what it seems like those numbers should be higher um but but maybe we're still a little bit earlier on i, I think regardless whatever it does it does show you the state of the consumer where the consumer's head is at at this point and and um you know that definitely is going to play something into these to these businesses favor Longer down the line, right? I mean that that I think is is sort of a uh, that's that's a good long term trend that you that you like to see that these businesses are focused on on capitalizing on, and, and I think they'll continue to do that. Yeah, just one big. If I put a one sentence takeaway is that consumers are spending money, but within within their home countries, if if Visa and Mastercard are not going to you know break new or set new earnings records for each company until cross border returns, which I don't see happening till mid next year at the earliest. Yeah, that's that's still got some time. Well, let's move over to one of your specialties, real estate investment trusts, REITs. You know, we love talking about these companies because they are typically very high yielding uh, investments. They like to pay out; they have to pay out a lot of their a lot of their uh, income there in, in dividends in order to to maintain that REIT and, and tax advantage status. But we saw news today: there are two more mall owners in CBL and Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust. These are smaller REITs, to, to be fair, but they have filed for Chapter Eleven bankruptcy protection. In and you know when I saw this headline this morning, I immediately thought of you because you know this space so well. And you know, on the one hand, I thought, well, they're small. I don't know that it's all that big of a deal. But you know, the other hand, I'm thinking, is is this a sign of of continued trouble, headwinds, problems that investors should be aware of? Well, first off, these aren't necessarily small companies. These are companies that have become penny stocks over the past few years. They didn't start out that way, right? Yeah, they, they <laughs> got they 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 earned their way to smallness, I guess. Are they? They own a lot of malls, so in that right. sense, they're actually pretty large companies. Yeah, um, I mean, Pennsylvania Real Estate Trust um, owns the mall I used to shop at as a kid that's still in New Jersey, uh, the Cherry Hill Mall, if anybody knows where that is. Um, both of these filed Chapter 11 today. It's really rare for a real estate investment trust to have to file bankruptcy. It's very, very rare. I can't tell you the last one that, that did it. Um, it was just a matter of time for these two, though. Th- these were kind of inevitable, um, especially in CBL's case. Um, their their debts just kind of spiraling out of control. Uncollected rent. A lot of big mall tenants have gone bankrupt this year. 
uh, Asena Brands, which is the parent company of Ann Taylor, Loft, and a few other brands. Uh, Tailored Brands, which is Men's Warehouse and Joseph A. Bank. Um, and JCPenney, which is a giant anchor, especially for these two companies, um, have all gone bankrupt. So th- this was, in CBL's case, just with the debt was unsustainable before all those went bankrupt. Um, so, and it's just to kind of put this in perspective, this was a 17 cent stock before this happened. So, it, you know, it was pretty much already priced in. I don't even think the bankruptcy really moved the needle all that much. Um, in the case of Pennsylvania Real Estate Trust, this was a planned and what they call a prepackaged bankruptcy. And there's $150 million in recapitalization financing ready and waiting. They're expecting to emerge pretty quickly. But for existing common stockholders, it's not very good news. Um, the one thing to keep in mind is that these are not only do they not are they not the, what they call the class A malls. These are, you know, the B, the regional malls, the ones that have had been struggling for years. The companies don't have a lot of liquidity, which is, you know, the word of the day. Uh, in 2020, REITs that have liquidity are doing well. The ones that don't are not. Um, don't worry about most, the, uh, don't worry about the class A mall operators um, just because of this. Like Simon Property Group, I'm not planning to sell anytime soon. They have over $8 billion in liquidity, a very manageable debt load, and they have the the capital available to reposition their properties when a tenant goes bankrupt. Simon just bought JCPenney, actually. That's right. You know, come That's to right. think of it. I remember we talked about that. Right. So they, they own the operating business now. So they they bought a few of the they bought what uh J Crew they they recently bought they recently bought um Lucky Brand. They so Simon has the money to do that. So I wouldn't worry too much about the the high-end mall operators um, cuz they not only are they buying up these retailers left and right, but they have the capital to reposition their properties to to adapt to the new retail environment. Say okay, you don't want a big department store, fine. We're going to put a concert venue where that was. Um, companies like CBL and Pennsylvania Real Estate Trust don't have the money to do that. So it's too, it's not really an apples to apples comparison. Like I said, these were, the writing was on the wall for a long time. Um, their malls are the, are going to stay open. Both of them are resuming, are, are not resuming, they're continuing operations while the, while bankruptcy proceedings are going on in Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust's case. It's, it's expected to emerge fairly quickly. Um, but this just kind of really underscores that quality matters more than ever right now, especially in the troubled sectors like retail, hotels, things like that. The troubled sectors of real estate, quality is the most important thing to look at when you're evaluating a stock. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that regarding quality because going back to just what we were talking about a minute ago in regard to valuations and price matters, um, you know, when we see these types of valuations that we're that we're seeing with a lot of these businesses today, I mean, some some of them are going to end up being great ideas. Some of them are going to be really successful, and, and some are not. Um, it, it just it really focus on the quality of the business. When you start getting to these lofty valuations, and, and you feel like that's a little bit of a concern. Just, just yeah. You know, make sure to give that give that quality a little bit of an extra weighting uh, when you're when you're considering businesses to add uh, to your portfolio because it, it really it really can it can help you sleep at night. I can tell you that for sure. I mean, it's it, it's it's always important to focus on quality when you're talking about real estate, but especially in tough times like this when it's really just uncertain and companies need to have capital available to to weather the storm. Yep. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about another one of our favorite businesses here, uh, Square. And, and we saw last week that there's this uh, potential, at least, where Credit Karma is in talks to sell its tax preparation business to Square. And I think you know part of this was was a deal uh, in order to avoid any antitrust concerns with you know another dynamic of this deal that doesn't involve Square. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't know. We were talking about this morning. I don't know if you had a chance to read through. There was an article this weekend on the Wall Street Journal that um, talked, you know, about Jack Dorsey, who's the CEO of, of Square and and Twitter, and talked, uh, you know, at length about his management style. And in particularly, he's he's got a very hands off management style, which seems to be totally plausible given that he's running two major, uh, you know billion multi-billion dollar corporations um but but it it does sound like there's the potential where you know maybe he's maybe he's a little bit too hands-off in some cases and and i think we could argue that twitter is is maybe not benefiting from close enough uh close enough you know uh eyes on what's going on there but at what point i mean with square it seems like they're going in a lot of different directions and and I, i'm not going to say i'm concerned with this at all but is there a point should we at least start becoming a little bit concerned with Square appearing to spread itself too thin? Well, first of all, I'm not concerned with Dorsey's management style at Twitter because I don't own that stock. So <laughs> selfishly, well, I don't really care. Neither uh, do I. That makes sense. I, I, I think Square. No, and in, in you know all seriousness, I think Square is the higher potential business of the two. So I think that's where his effort should be focused. I agree totally. Um, but Dorsey's management style reminds me a lot of Warren Buffett's. And hear me out here. Warren Buffett has said what we try to do is find the 400 hitters and then not teach them how to swing. And that's kind of what Dorsey does. He hires, you know, a rock star CFO. Um, you know, he had Sarah Fryer. Square's new current CFO is doing phenomenal in their in her role. Um, so he, he tends to subscribe to that Warren Buffett mindset of, I'm going to find the best people possible and then not tell them how to do their jobs. <laughs> um, which is a great management style. <laughs> I mean, it can be. It can be. But um, so if you're not familiar, uh, Credit Karma, which we never get a chance to talk about because technically they're one of our competitors in a lot of ways, and we don't really you know talk about our competitors that much. But uh, Credit Karma is being acquired by Intuit, uh, which is the the parent company of TurboTax. So as a regulatory concern, Credit Karma, their tax preparation is not their primary business, so they really don't care about getting rid of it. Uh, the fact that Square is buying it. It kind of fits into, I mentioned Sarah Fryer, it fits into her kind of mindset that she wanted Cash App to be able to do to do for people whatever their banks can do. So, she, I mean, her vision was to have checking accounts, personal loans, insurance products, mortgages, auto loans, the whole nine yards. And tax preparation is a pretty natural fit in that. The concern is whether Square's getting into too many different growth verticals at the same time. Um, we, we know, and we've talked about Jack Dorsey's love affair with Bitcoin, which as I've said before, is my least favorite part of Square. Um, but there's also, there's Square's trying to build out online store right now. Their, their brokerage is just getting, getting going really. Um, remember they launched their, the ability to trade stocks on the, on cash app. So, and, and they're applying for a banking charter at the same time and maybe going to do personal lending through, through the cash app, who knows? So the question is, should they just their businesses that they have now are growing at 
you know, phenomenal rates, you know, 40, 50% revenue growth a year. Should they just focus on keeping those growing for the time being? Or should they spread their focus out into even more verticals while everything's going so well? And that's kind of the big question. Um, I mean, tax planning is not a core competency of Square. It's not going to be a core competency of Square. But the question is, does that make Cash App more valuable to people and therefore boost membership and boost monetization, things like that? So I'm curious to know where you stand on that. But I, I, I would be in favor of this move as long as it was for a reasonable sum of money. Yeah, I think you probably hit a hit on hit on the 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 point I would I would have mentioned would be you know price price to me is is everything here like as long as as long as they're getting a fair price and, and they're not out there um you know trying to outbid someone else for this because I I do I do I I do feel like I'm getting a little concerned just in, in are they pursuing too many verticals at once versus not really you know just just focusing on doing a couple of things really well right now and and I can see the merits to both we can see examples throughout history of of it working out both ways too um, so then when it comes to his management style it really just boils down to making sure that you hire good people and and I think he tends to do that right he's even said before I mean that, that's his that he sees that as his primary role is is basically finding the talent to help run these businesses and then letting them do their thing and so hopefully that does work out uh, the way it's worked out for Buffett and Munger through the years over at Berkshire Hathaway. Um, I certainly like the markets they're pursuing. It's not, it's not like they're like, remember when they got, they got rid of caviar, right? Remember they got rid of caviar, the, the, the food delivery uh, business. I mean, that to me was a primary, that was a perfect example of a business that just wasn't really in line with the, the rest of the stuff they were doing. Um, the, the tax business could be. I, I don't. I, I don't know what kind of. I don't know what kind of traction it'll gain. Uh, but but certainly, it made me think about that bigger question of. All right, let's make sure these guys aren't trying to do too many things at once because that can really be difficult sometimes. Um, yeah, it's something to keep in mind, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, I like I said, it needs to be for a reasonable price, and it needs to add value to the business. And the, the difference between caviar and this. Square wants all their businesses to now fall into two very distinct baskets. Does this help people with personal finance? Does it help with small business finance? Caviar doesn't really fit into either of those. But tax preparation definitely fits into the personal finance basket. So that's why it, it makes a little more sense than a caviar type business. But like I said, it has to, has to be for the right price. I can't imagine credit cards tax prep businesses is, is a giant moneymaker at this point. Yeah. Nah, I mean, TurboTax is just, they really do own that market in a lot of ways, too. So, um, But it can be sticky. It can be sticky. So if they do it right, who knows? Uh, you know, they, they definitely, Jack has a, a good long-term focus, and I really like that about him. And so we'll, uh, I remain a very happy shareholder, and I'm sure you do, too. Uh, well, before we wrap it up, Matt, as always, we like to give our listeners one to watch for the coming week. And I'm going to let you lead it off here. What is your one to watch for this coming week? I am watching Berkshire Hathaway. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, coming up on Saturday, they're like the only company that ever reports earnings on a Saturday, but their earnings are coming out this coming Saturday. Um, Berkshire's earnings don't tell us all the information we want. We want to know about their stock portfolio because that's like half the business. Um, and you don't get much information about that in the earnings report. But what you should pay attention to is one, how much cash do they have? Because that'll tell you if they bought a lot of stocks or not. Um, you know, if they're, if, their cash portfolio went down to from 120 billion to 100 billion, for example, and they didn't make any major acquisitions. You can pretty much bet they spent that on the stock market. Um, the buybacks is another big issue. Did Berkshire buy its shares when it's trading at a historically low valuation? 
Um, and how are their operating businesses doing? Their, their operating businesses are generally designed to do well no matter what the economy is doing. Like think of Geico, the insurance company, they, they sell a product people need no matter what. So operating businesses, cash and buybacks are what I'm watching. And then by the 14th, they have to submit their 13F, which will tell us more about their stock portfolio and what they've bought and sold. I, I'm curious to see. There's There's been speculation that Berkshire might have pared back its Apple investment after the, the recent run-up. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to see what, what they did. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have a lot of fun digging through that 13F and talking about it on uh, a future show here in the next couple of weeks for sure. Um, I am going to keep an eye out for Bill.com's earnings that come out later this week. I think Thursday, November 5th, we'll see their earnings uh, drop. And, you know, I mean, this is, we, we talked about this company on the show before. Um, it's it's the stock that I recently bought, uh, you know, the episode we were talking about the next stocks that we were going to buy. And uh, just this is a neat business from a lot of different angles. I mean, I, I think one of their key. Uh, points of focus is their their work with artificial intelligence, the AI-driven platform, which uh, really helps to streamline the transaction lifecycle. It, it automates data capture and entry. It, it routes bills for approval, detects duplicates, fraud. I mean, it really, uh, this is a neat business from a number of different angles and focused on helping the small to medium-sized businesses with their back office operations and eliminating paper. Um, paying attention to total customers, total payments, uh, you know the, the volume that flows through the network, the network members. This all is really helping to drive very impressive revenue growth. Um, and, and I think what appears to be a growing network effect, which can be a nice, uh, nice competitive advantage, but I'll be keeping an eye on that one. But Matt, I think that's going to do it for us this week. I appreciate you, as always, taking the time out of your day to join us and Give our listeners the good stuff, as they say. Of course, I will see you guys next week. All right, man, looking forward to it. Remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or you can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 